What does Le Mans and Adelaide have in common? Gentlemen, start your engines. Welcome to a very special episode of the Motor Racing Passion Podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years since the race of a thousand years, an international sports car race that took place in Adelaide, Australia, on the full Formula One Grand Prix circuit on New Year's Eve in the year 2000. This is a three-part podcast where we'll be taking a deep dive into the event and discussing all the goings-on that took place leading up, during and after the big race. Joining me, Luke Blackman, to chat about the event. As usual, I'm my brothers, Adam and Daniel, and my friend, Brock. Why do we remember this race so fondly, given it was scrapped after one year? Well, Luke, it's the equivalent of IMSA rolling into town now at a straight track. So say IMSA announced they're going to run around at um, at the Gold Coast. It's, it's a pretty big deal, really. It's a very big deal, actually. It's a super cool concept. I think the part is we hadn't really seen anything prior to this event and obviously, sadly, with the one-off nature of it, we've never seen anything like it since. So, um, yeah, so I think just that one-off, one special time in Adelaide 20 years ago now, it's, um, yeah, really stuck around. Yeah, 100% agree with both Brock and Daniel there. Uh, the big boys rolled into town with, uh, you know, cars that we all have seen run at Le Mans and I guess across America at the time. Great cars, big names that come out big event after one year as they said do you think given it only lasted one year is probably why we sort of remember it fondly these days yeah i think it's just the as i said like the uniqueness it's like so many people well we'll touch on were there but i mean i think myself i'd be like how good would it have been to be at the one one time only lms race in adelaide so especially because at the time from from memory, it was sort of largely ignored in a way by the sort of the local print and TV media. Was it was it to- totally ignored? Because not actually, totally ignored, no, but I I think at the time it was just at the time sort of you know the the five hundred cc Grand Prix was huge. Like we had Rally Australia um, in WA, which was quite popular. We had the um, Gold Coast Indie, sort of, I think. It was just the, another international It was just another international race. And also at the time you sort of had the push from V8 Supercars saying that, you know, what? why do we – they were saying to governments, saying, you know, we've got this product in Australia and they were trying to con- convince local government to back V8 Supercar street races um, that sort of the sports car race was sort of just just another international race. I think the other thing is I don't, I'm not sure – you know, just your average Australian motorsport fan, how closely they would have followed ALMS back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go up to the hill at, you know, Winton and ask a bunch of guys if they follow IMSA, I'd say most of them would say no. No. So that probably contributed to it not getting the hype that it probably yeah, deserved. But Channel 10, like they were they were the event partners Yeah. Um, in it. Obviously, they didn't show the event live, but they, they obviously had a bit of skin in the game. Yeah, they showed highlights of various various ALMS American Le Mans series rounds that year, but um, I mean, just highlights, and I think it was paid for television. Mm. But uh, I think, from my point of view, in that uh, for, for it there, like if it lasted two or three years, I think it would have still had the same effect um, from being the once off that same thing we've been saying the you know. It's the equivalent of IMSA these days rolling in for it. I think if it rolled on for twenty years, it would. I think it would come into oh, it's the big event coming back again. I've been there four or five times. I'll watch it from home this time if it was on TV from there. So I think that uniqueness of being only once or there is what what makes it. Everyone still talk about it these days. Yeah. Something interesting is like I was raised on <clears throat> racing, like all of us, but I. I my dad never told me anything about the race of a thousand years. I was seven when it happened. And then I remember 
he has his model car collection and he had this crocodile car. I was like, what's that? And he goes, oh, that's from the race of a thousand years. And I had never heard of it. Yeah. So you're right. It wasn't um, it wasn't a big big news story at the time. So I think you mentioned not a lot of people on the hill had know what um, IMSA is mm. at the hill at Winton. That was one of the things why Don Penos, who we'll touch on in a minute, what when he created the series and he named it, why he called it the American Le Mans series, was he said that the name Le Mans is a name that, is one of the when it comes to racing, it's a name that immediately everyone in the world generally knows. Whereas if he called it, say, the American Sports Car Championship or something, that 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 name doesn't resonate as easily. But the Le Mans name mm. gives an mm. idea of what it is. No, that probably yeah, I, I agree with that for it there. Um, for it there, like same thing is these days if you equivalise it to the Australian market, um, you know, you call it a touring car. Oh, you mean V8 supercars? Well, that's the same effect, the the reverse way for that. Yeah. So yeah, hundred percent. Like for well, it's kind of like if you just called the touring car championship the Bathurst Championship or the Bathurst car races. Yeah. Um, I think it was good good branding by yeah. Don Panels, and he obviously that that brand's lived on. Well, not in America now, but in terms of you know European Le Mans series, Asian Le Mans series. So it's um so it is quite an evocative and um, strong brand. Yeah. So, this was sort of the third attempt at an international sports car race in Australia, given that in 2000, the way sports car racing had gone, it was basically the de facto world championship, the ALMS. But we tr- we tried twice at Sandown in 1984 and 1988, and it hadn't quite got a foothold. Again, another event I had never heard of because I wasn't born then until you introduced me to it. Yeah. And I- it's going. Is that Group C cars at Sandown? Yeah, <laughs> that is so cool. But again, I just didn't know about it. It yeah. just didn't get the hype it deserved. Yeah, they were sort of. They were at the end of the championship year. So, for instance, the first year, the um, you had a lot of Porsches come out for in 1984, but some of the other works teams like the uh, Lanciers stayed away. And then in by the time it got to 1988, you had the the main Saubers and Jaguars came out. But um, some of the leading privateer Porsches and that stayed away, and that that ultimately is what hurts the race of a thousand years as well, in that not all the leading teams came out because it was the end of the year. So from what I understand, there were a lot of subsidies put in place that essentially wasn't going to cost the teams anything more than a a normal round. Yeah, well, it shouldn't, and that's well, that's what a lot of the international events in local series try and do. They try and they don't want the international. They they try and get the local promoters to pay the money, mm. so it doesn't cost them as much. But that's like they succeeded in that because I think looking through there are a number of teams that obviously participated um, in it and and confirmed that that it didn't cost them any more. But I think when you look at the likes of BMW um, and I think it was the Corvette um, GTS cars as well, that they like it was almost I was just looking for a reason not to. And, mm. and the fact that you know traveling 15 hours down to australia to to a race it was just yeah. it wasn't a financial decision in the end but it was just uh you know what were they to gain from it yeah yeah we'll come to we'll come to sort of the entries of the race in a minute but a bit but a bit of background so the american le mans series was created by a man named don panos who amongst other things he headed the company that um headed the company that invented the nicotine patch and from there, he started up his own company that developed it, and sort of that's how he made his fortune on the back of the nicotine patch. And ultimately, his son had a company called Penos Auto Development, which was funded by Don. And when it was fu- when it was founded in 1989, their goal, one of the goals originally of the company, was to enter a car at Le Mans with Mario Andretti driving, and that goal eventually came true in 2000 when Mario drove with them at Le Mans. From there, his interest in motorsports got to 1997 where he had his own car, the Panos Esperante, and it was entered in the um, FIA GT World Championship and ultimately Le Mans. That that was that the, it's a very silver? iconic car, isn't it? Silver. Yeah, silver with the yellow yeah. little lip at the front, I think. Yeah, from The Visteon sponsorship. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, That's a cool car. Out. A lot of people recognise that car. I think it's it's um, prominence in Gran Turismo helped. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that, that's a cool car. 
and loud, buy it. Loud too. Yeah. Beautiful sound. By um by the late nineties, he so by the late nineties he'd invested in what was then called the Professional Sports Car Racing Championship, which was originally IMSA. It had changed its name in the mid nineties and he invested in it. And for nineteen ninety nine, Don obviously, I suppose, had ideas for what he could do with a championship. And he did a deal with the ACO who run the Lamar twenty four hours. And the deal was that for him to start a series taking the ACO rules, the complete rule set, and applying them to races in America. So for 1999, when it was started, it, his series basically replaced the Professional Sports Car Racing Championship and they sanctioned it. And ultimately he, would, uh, he actually bought the complete company, Professional Sports Car Racing, in 2001 and ultimately renamed it to IMSA as a sanctioning body. But it shows from, a, from an interest in motor racing that seemed to stem from his son starting up a company, he got very involved very quickly. Mm. People like this other backbone of motorsport, aren't they, outside of the big manufacturers? But yeah, it's interesting that, yeah, so no involvement prior to that. But obviously Not, not that I son. could find, not, yeah. no, nothing major anyway that I could find. Interesting. Has his son is his son still involved now? Obviously, we're jumping forward quite a number of years, but I, I'm not sure now. Yeah, I believe he was still involved in the team. When was the last time the panels raced in a sort of factory sense? Mid two thousands. Yeah, I think they were still they're in the GT class. Yeah, they in the were. mid two thousands. Yeah. Um, they'd sort of pulled back from outright prototypes by then. But obviously, yeah, with with, with when the merger happened and things like that, that. Just appears they have fully retracted from, um, you know, kind of like a visible role within the sports car scene. In the yeah, US. well, they sold their tracks and everything. Yeah, they bought up uh, Sebring and um, Road Atlanta. Yeah, in that time, and sort of when they merged with um, Grand Am, sort of all the ownership sort of passed on to, well, Grand yeah. Am NASCAR. Yeah, so it's all in, and then uh, now they're pretty much all out. Yeah, but no, but yeah, by the time when he started the ALMS. It was, it was basically, I suppose he was almost saving American sports car racing because it had fallen a long way from the glory days of the early 90s. So when it, when it changed from ALMS to what was eventually IMSA, well, like what was the difference between ALMS and ESCR regulation-wise well, and car-wise? Ultimately, that, that was similar. Professional sports car racing, it was similar to Lamar rules, but they had their own various interpretations, classes of car and re- re- requirements for different rules. And I think his, his idea was that if he applied the Lamar rules to a national series, that way people could come in from overseas and the, the car rules are set. They know, they know what to expect. Americans can take their cars to Lamar and yeah, the cars yeah. are already eligible. And... So he, it, it just ran locally and he also established the Petit Le Mans at, at his own track, Road Atlanta, which is sort of a local nod to um, to the great race at Le Mans. But he had big plans for the ALMS, American Le Mans series, and in late 1999, it was announced there'd be a race at Adelaide on the old Grand Prix circuit in the 2000 calendar. And it was announced that it would be on New Year's Eve in 2000. How, how did Adelaide get thrust to the forefront for the American Le Mans series to come down under? That's that that's something I've always wondered myself. Being around that, well, David Brabham, David Brabham, who was who had signed on to drive for Penos from nineteen ninety seven, so he was well entrenched in the team by two thousand. In late nineteen ninety nine, there's a quote from David Brabham saying that when Don Penos asked asked him some time ago. Where would be the best place in Australia to race? The first word I said to him was Adelaide. So, but whether I, that's really I what guess, happened, or I guess in two thousand, like the Grand Prix had only sort of recently sort of yeah, transitioned years. away from yeah. there, and it was like the, the touring car event was like sort of standing alone. Like yeah. it was a big event, I guess, in the two thousand. And I, I think, yeah, I think for South Australia too, that was still very dirty that they'd lost the Formula One Grand Prix. So this 
this was a way to get a mm. international level category back to Adelaide and kind of show show off the circuit and the um uh, and the city. And do we know why they chose the the Formula One version of the track rather than the, the supercar yeah, version? version? I would say it was possibly it was FIA length okay. the track. Yeah, I just wondered that. And maybe to set aside a difference yeah. between yeah. the Clipsal 500 for V8 supercars, which had sort of – I mean, that was a very popular event. I suppose this was just building on the success of that and a way to use the old track. Yeah, and it's, it's a much better track too. But the, the oh, supercars definitely. didn't run the no, F1 no. layout. They run their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they shortened it, I think, for logistical reasons in the town. Okay. But – um. Just they had to close less roads off. It's just interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Like a street circuit, you very rarely get a, a, two events at a street circuit that run on a different configuration yeah. except for sort of Formula E. Yeah, with yeah. With the exception of that, it's always the same layout. Yeah. But but with that, at the time of the announcement in 99, did the ALMS run anywhere outside of America, outside that? Not in 99. Well, Canada. But they – um. <laughs> If that counts, but uh, for for the, the, I mean the the plan was the ultimate blueprint which came to came to fruition was that in two thousand, as well as Adelaide, they had announced they'd run two races in Europe. So with an ultimate goal was that the the races in Europe in two thousand would launch uh, would springboard into a two thousand and one European Le Mans Championship, and the race in Adelaide would springboard into the Asia Pacific Le Mans Championship. To run alongside the American Le Mans yeah. series, which so would um, it was a springboard. You yeah, they, they were going to use the European that. races to launch the European series. Yeah, At the Adelaide race would launch the um, Asia Pacific series, and then the idea was from then on they'd run their own series, and Adelaide in years to come would become sort of the grand final for where the ALMS champions, the ELMS champions, yeah. and the Asia Pacific champions would come together at the end of the year. Can't knock the concept. No, nice. Like, no, great it idea. Really great. good on paper. What tracks were they going to run at in Europe? Well, 2000, it got announced they would run at Silverstone and the Nurburgring. And they sort of re, rebirth. It was a rebirth of the um, Silverstone 1000. Nurburgring. And the Nurburgring 1000. Which. The, unfortunately, the, no, the Grand Prix. Track. Track. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that, I didn't know that. Yeah. This just got way cooler. <laughs> that would have been. <laughs> But when when the Adelaide race was announced in '99, there's um there's some good quotes from Don Penos in the in the in the announcement. He uh, he says that Adelaide will get all the spectacle of Le Mans without having to get a passport or a plane ticket. Smart move. Yeah. He said, and apart, well, if there's a capital of motorsport in Australia, it's Adelaide. Eastern Creek might um argue with that, judging by the sign on <laughs> the home of Australian on, motorsport. On the home of Australian motorsport, Eastern Creek. Sydney Motorsport Park. And it well, there's sort of an ominous line that Don comes out with as well. We want to be in Adelaide for as long as the people of South Australia will have this. Rather ominous. He also says in it, my my two passions in life are drinking and driving, although not at the same time. It's a bold move when you're launching a race. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know how a quote like that would go down in yeah. 2020. I don't think Heineken would support it. <laughs> no. Unless it was Heineken Zero. Yeah, Cooper's a major sponsor of the event, though. So yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Our local, local Adelaide yeah. brewery. Yeah. It, it also comes to light later on in, in a March 2004 document called the National Competition Policy Review of South of the South Australian Motorsport Act 1984. It's revealed in that that Penos Motorsports Australia promoted the race and took all the financial risk, which I would say helps and it gives another indication how the event got over the line. And I, I just I can't knock this guy. Like no. this concept is really cool. He's backing he's, it. Yeah. Yeah, like he's walking the walk. I mean, it's, it's I don't I can't understand how this didn't blow up into something <laughs> yeah. huge. Like it all sounds rosy well, at the it, moment. And he was putting like he had his own team in the series and he committed well, he ultimately committed three cars to the race as well in the outright class. And I wish I was old enough to sort of Travel down there by myself and watch this. Well, so do I. I sort of look back now and I think to myself, so why didn't I go? And I remember I was still in school. <laughs> yeah. Well, school know, holidays. Yeah. It's also revealed that the race slogan was a uh, New Year Top Gear Race Here. Smooth. Makes Smooth. You, makes you wonder, mm. do, do events have slogans these days? Uh, 
Sometimes the big ones do, occasionally. Maybe for new ones getting launched. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a new events that's – but the, the yeah. standard well, – The, the supercar ones do, you know, the special spectacular super sprint oh. style Sydney. <laughs> so they haven't got any better. Well, I, I, think, I think the big ticket events, they write their own, like the Le Mans 24-hour. Like you, you don't need a slogan for the Le Mans 24 hour for a poster. But maybe in 1923 or whatever year well, it was they did. Yeah. You had the person out in the street spruiking yeah. back then. But like even I think the Petit Le Mans, which we touched on before. But you know what? It's very American to have a slogan. It is. So maybe, yeah. yeah. I think in Australia it's like not really our thing, but, you know, the Americans are all about theatre and cinema and yeah. it's very theatrical. <laughs> so... Ultimately, the 2000 American Le Mans series is run over 12 races, nine in America, two in Europe, and finished off at Adelaide. It's a big, it's a running through the schedules, a big, I don't like, we'll get to it later, but I also don't blame some teams for <laughs> come December not, yeah. not being willing to, willing to take up the last round because it's a big schedule. Yeah. I think from uh, 12 hours of Sebring in March, yeah. uh, going across to Europe for two 1,000 race. Uh, Thousand kilometer races, and then as well as Le Mans, they, ke- they kept the calendar Adelaide. free for everyone to go to Le Mans as well. Yeah, so I'm like, it's a mass- massive schedule, they, and it was supposed to be longer because it were, the season, which ultimately opened at Sebring, it was originally supposed to open at a street race in San Diego, which was had originally been scheduled for the '99 series, but was put back to 2000 to give organisers more time to prepare. But ultimately, this race fell over because they couldn't. They couldn't meet the timelines to prepare for the race in February. That's and interesting. The, N- never knew, San Diego would be never incredible. Knew, yeah, San Diego. Never knew they were going to have a race. And the, the best one of all, well, not the best one of all, the unfortunate one of all, there was there was supposed to be a double Asia-Pacific swing at the end of the year. There was supposed to be a round at, in Malaysia at Sepang at the start of December to sort of tie in with um, Adelaide at the end of December. But after they'd sort of worked out a date, of December 3, it was revealed that the race fell during Ramadan and they would struggle to get enough officials. Bit of an oversight. Yeah. It's a bit like um, when they originally announced the 2020 supercars race at um, at Pukekohe on Anzac Day and then it was revealed later on, oh, they don't actually have permission to race on Anzac Day <laughs> at that event. And so now we're starting, we're seeing events cancelled and everything. But- yeah. I mean, can you guys imagine if this all worked? Yeah, yeah. Can't well, believe how cool this is. The yeah. vision, you go. You can't fault the vision at any of this. No, it's, yeah. it's awesome. Well, and it left two rounds between the, um, sorry, two months between the final two rounds then, at Las Vegas and then coming in Adelaide. So I guess in a way that might have also played a part in teams just tapping out after Las Vegas. Yep. What, tr- what track is in Las Vegas? Um, Roval. <laughs> a yeah. Roval. With, uh, so Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Can, can we please call, call it a road course? I'm really No, it's against, a Roval. It's a Roval. It's the Charlotte Roval, mate. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> Deal but, with it. Well, actually, round it? two was on the Charlotte Roval. <laughs> was it? Yeah, I was going to say, half the championship Roval. Do, yeah. do you call it the Daytona Roval or do you call it the Daytona road course? It's different, though. Well, the, I, I heard the term Roval yeah. since they did the reboot of the track for the NASCAR a couple of years, years ago. And then every, I, everyone seems to be calling it a Roval. I understand I th- it's a I road under- course on an oval, but I'm a traditionalist in that aspect. It's a road course. I can understand why they'd call, say, Daytona a road course or the Indianapolis track a road course, whereas I, I would usually term the definition of a Roval on, like, your one-and-a-half-mile high bank speedway where, you know, they're sort of going up on the oval, down into a chicane, back up on the oval, a little, a little Mickey Mouse infield bit then. Not I reckon. Well, actually, maybe that sounds See, like Daytona, I, but <laughs> my my definition in my head is if if NASCAR run on it, it's a roval. So Daytona is now a roval because the NASCARs were on it. Well, different config. They had an extra chicane. Doesn't so. matter. <laughs> See, Charlotte. If it was sports cars running on it, it would be the Charlotte Road Course. But because NASCAR did it, it's a roval. It's a damn roval, Adam. I, I think the the backdrop to all this as well. We're talking about the big visions and the the how much panels was investing in it as well. The launch of Grand Am that obviously is playing out in the background in the United States. That yeah. as as you said, Don Panels has kind of saved American sports car racing. And then you've got a rival yeah. organization fronting up um, in 2000 as well. Yeah, obviously heavily affiliated and potentially funded through NASCAR. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, you've kind of got the IndyCar 
uh, champ car kind of rivalry going there. Sort of, yeah. As, as he's trying to launch some uh, his worldwide expansion. Yeah. I think they sort of served two different um, markets, though, in a way. Like, I think Grand Am initially, like, it didn't attract any of the factories um, outside of Daytona. You never had, um, you know, Audi wasn't going to run Grand Am or BMW or Panos or didn't. Well, obviously Panos wouldn't, but um, no, no, no. I mean Corvette would do Daytona twenty four, mm. but the main manufacturer interest was in the American Le Mans series. No, I agree, but I think more from a like you probably lost you think, some privateers. Yeah, but also yeah, you look look at the casual viewer too, and trying to well, not even casual, but even like the motorsport fan, and trying to differentiate two sports car series. You've got a oh, Daytona yeah, twenty four, yeah. you've got a Sebring twelve, you've got, and that kind of thing. I don't think's actually helped it. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially when he's trying to launch it and you know yeah. get mm. bigger. But the, the so the two thousand American Le Mans series, it it really was a season of two halves. It started off in the Sebring twelve hour where Audi, so Audi Audi had a had a works team along with BMW and Penos, and the outright class and Audi were very dominant with their brand new Audi R eight at Sebring, but then they parked it till June at Le Mans, and they went back to their old nineteen ninety nine car for the next two rounds, and BMW won the next two rounds at. Charlotte on the Roval for, with uh, JJ Lado and um, Jorg Muller. And they also won the Silverstone 500 in Europe, which was, which showed actually where, how competitive the series was because you had the privateer Raffinelli Lola on pole um, and all the men of all the different manufacturers in uh, prototype were up the front for the race and they all had a chance to win. And ultimately BMW did win. Then they went to Le Mans and then Nürburgring was the fourth round of the season where Audi started running the R8 again, the 2000 model R8. But the Penos one, Brabham and Jan Magnussen, dominated the event. But then from round five onwards, the Audi R8 takes over and they're not beaten for the rest of the season. Um, McNish ends up, Mc, Alan McNish and R- Ronaldo Capello, or Dindo for the rest of the, <laughs> the, rest of the podcast, uh, they end up taking six wins for the rest of the year. Um, well, five wins for in in addition, they won the opener. But um, yeah, it ends up being a domination for the rest of the year, and the other other cars can't get close to them. No, impressive run. Like you look at that back half of the season and that momentum they took from Le Mans, um, Le Mans onward uh, is quite crushing. Um, as you said, BMW got left behind. Panels valiantly fought on, but yeah. just didn't have, couldn't hold the torch to them. Yeah. I think BMW had almost lost interest. Well, exactly. <laughs> they were eyes fully set on the Formula One world. Yeah. Um, for, for beyond. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But to give an idea, after four rounds, after Nürburgring, round four, before they went back to America for rounds five to 11, McNish and Capello were eight, it was seventh and eighth in points, 40 off the lead BMWs. Mm and by the end of the season, they were—I they were, mean—they were miles in front, McNish and Capello. So, it, it is a—it's a—it's a great season to watch. Um, you can watch all the all the twelve rounds on YouTube if you want to put to put aside yeah. a couple of days to work through it. I'm currently <laughs> eking my way through the Sebring twelve hour, and um, yeah, the coverage is is awesome. Yeah. So, um, do yourself a favor and check it out. They were sandbagging pre Lamont. Well, that, I mean, they're running the old car, so. I, I don't. Maybe that. Maybe they were just saving. Know, it's just weird. Like they're they're sort of average, and then yeah. Yeah. more, and then unbeaten. Yeah. But I think it shows you the huge step they made between their R eight R, the open top. Oh, sorry, the um, uh, the older car, the ninety nine. Yeah, the ninety nine. Yeah. Versus the two thousand car. Yeah. Because they um obviously they rolled out the R eight for Sebring. Yeah. And were super quick. Uh, and then obviously they reverted back, and obviously it just shows you those '99 cars. The BMW was um, was a lot stronger. Yeah, that was but a really good looking car. That BMW is that the it Dell? was. Yeah, I Dell. like. I don't know. I, yeah, I was never really majorly into the open top prototypes. Really? But, yeah, but I the think BMW they were really unique. I, 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 I like. Them. I just think they're classic. Yeah, like. they're classic. Adam's right. They're iconic. Luke, they've got their own <laughs> time. I much preferred the um, the Audi R8C from 1999. I wish they'd pushed on oh, with that, yeah, yeah, yeah. the closed top prototype. Yeah. That they sort of they sort of hedged their bets in '99 with an open top and a closed top. Yeah, they're in four cars. But I mean that, but I mean that R8C ultimately 
formed a bit of a, a bit of a basis for the Bentley attack from yeah. 2000 onwards. But for, further to what you into, you alluded to earlier with the um, the round not costing the Adelaide event shouldn't cost any more than the than any other round. The one of the big um, sort of offerings that the American Le Mans series put in place for the Adelaide race was they put some very generous freight and travel subsidies in place for people to get to the race. And amongst other things, one of the provisos was that, as Brock said, the race shouldn't cost any more than any of the normal rounds. But also all the team members would receive a subsidised a subsidised Aussie vacation with their families. There was free accommodation for four members per team from December 20 to January 3. So that's a proper holiday they mm. were giving them. And uh, accommodation for a wife or partner was free and all the other accommodation at reduced rates. They also, well, Adam would be a good person to ask for this. Um, re- regular series competitors were offered a 40-foot 40, 40 container for $15,000 per car. Is that is that a good deal? or Back in 2000. Back in 2000. Back in 2000. Is that US oh. or AUD? I'm assuming I'd say US. US and I'd say air freight as well. Probably. For it there because especially even though it was a two-month break from Las Vegas to Adelaide, for it there, uh, by sea freight, I think these days it's 40, 45 days, I think, from the from Anaheim to Sydney. I think it's around about 44, 45 days in that there and clear customs past that. So I reckon that might be air freight back in the day um, for it there. Um, for that, I reckon on a group deal these days um usually it's subsidized for the season for most uh asian uh, asian series we do it there um for it but yeah it's probably competitive at the time so one thing there's a quote from don penos in the article about the freight and um, travel subsidies he says um this is a fabulous opportunity for people to not only finish the series in style but also enjoy the biggest party they'll attend for a thousand years I hope the packages we've put together will give teams the incentive they need to see in the real millennium properly. What one point they they seem to really make a big point that this is the real millennium it's celebration. Why it, it's why it's called the race of a thousand years. Yep, yep. That's why they called it that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Again, very American, you know, very theatrical. But I guess that goes back into his uh, statement earlier about I, I like to, to, to drink and drive, not at the same time. He's got the thing, come for this great race, but then enjoy it, have a holiday, let's party, let's yeah. do all that, So, which is also the American way. Let's do it big well, both ways. It's working because like we're going through all this and I wish I was there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as doesn't say he's, he's thought of every aspect of it. Yeah. It's not yeah. he's just put on a race and made a lot of noise. He's actually, as you said, he's, he's walking the walk by providing – travel arrangements, incentives for family members, yeah. holidays, race. So, yeah. I can't knock him. No. Yeah. I think what's coming through is he sees the series as a family. And he's really passionate yeah. about he, it. He, he, he considers everyone, even if you're indifferent, he wants everyone to everyone to be included. I mean, fa- family deals and things like that in yep. there to bring your whole family out. And, I mean, for, for a holiday, you, you know, out here for Christmas and mm. – it, it, and all it, that, it's um, it almost seems like he wants it for everyone in the series to be like the end of season trip. Oh, Scott, for sure, yeah, like, I'm sure you know. it was, yeah. But it sees it, he, he see he sees it as a family, not just as a racing series. Yeah, and but yeah, I did I did find it. Yeah, that there was a big push made that this was the real millennium, not 99 into 2000 was the sort of millennium celebration, which I suppose technically is right, although it's not as cool to see a clock tick over from. Oh, 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 to oh one as it was to see four digits change from ninety nine mm. to two thousand. But um, amongst the other noteworthy things leading into this race was there was a there was a new camera system that was going to be introduced called the NaviCam that would use GPS tracking to make the car on str- on screen stand out more. Now, when we when we watched the race in preparation, did you notice the cars standing out more on camera? No. No. And have you noticed it ever since? The, the only uh, thing I'd say was potentially watching it on YouTube, 
there might have been some uh, quality. Yeah, the the high well not high definition back then, but the definition might have been a little bit lost. Yeah. So I'll give them a pass yeah. there. One of the more unfortunate aspects of the advertising for the race was um, so there was an ad an advertisement that used to play on TV, usually during the Channel Ten American Le Mans series um, episodes during the year leading up to the race where where they played the ad for it. And amongst other things on the ad, there's a line from JJ Leto saying, um, we all can't wait to come down under. Of course, JJ Leto and the BMW team don't end up coming. Mm. <laughs> there's also in the ad for Adelaide, it advertises Corvette and Ferrari. Yeah. Neither of them showed up. <laughs> they did well. <laughs> and there's a, li- there's a line in the ad that says CF1 stars, Alvaretto, Leto, Brabham and Johansson. Well, three of those four didn't turn up. <laughs> um, hey, there was at least one for me. At least Brabham did. <laughs> well, there, there was a few in the end who'd run F1 there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, why was Emanuele Piero not in the ad? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's – I mean, it was a bit unfortunate. I mean, months out, you can't. You've got to take a punt. Yeah, correct. Mm. I, don't, I don't think that affected anything. No, no, like anything no not, not, not at all. But looking – but when you look back on it, it's uh, – Yeah. It was a shame Audi didn't bring Michele Alberto. Given he was a contracted Audi driver, and yes, yeah, yeah. Well, and then and then obviously the the events that, uh, that followed as well. So, yeah, um, yeah. So if we turn our attention to sort of the um, the entry list to the race, and who who was coming and who wasn't coming, there's a real soap opera that went on during the year with regards to particularly the the, the top three major teams in the series, which were Penoz. Audi and BMW as to who who would be running in the race, and there's none more so than the Penoz soap opera that led up to led up to the event. So it started off early in the year where um, Don Penoz offered um, Mark Noski, a young a young up and coming Australian driver at the time, he offered him a test at Road Atlanta for August that year, and he says that he's looking for a driver for Adelaide. Now, before the test takes place. There's an article where um, Mark Noski is announced as a Penos driver for Adelaide, and that he would join a um, he'd join a three car Penos team. So I suppose that was the first announcement that Penos would run three cars rather than the usual two, and he was likely to partner test driver Klaus Graf or their endurance driver at Le Mans Pierre Henri Raffinel. Now, when you heard that, Daniel, what was your first comment? I was. Oh, Jermaine, happy there'd be an Australian element to it. However, Mark Noski, like... I reckon he was be- pretty good. I well, a, but I, I believe your comment Noski was um, surely you paid for it. Well, yes, and and, <laughs> and with, without being uh, harsh to Mark Noski too, obviously his father was heavily involved in Patch Scuderia at the time and obviously... So that's Branching Horse Racing who it ultimately turned out were coordinating the Australian end of the panel's effort at the race. Yeah, and, and obviously to start with anyway. Well known to be quite quite well funded operation. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think Noski had had some indie lights tests and things in the preceding year. So yeah, money was no obstacle for uh, the Noskis when it came to slotting uh, people into drives. Yeah. I'm a bit of a Mark Noski fan, actually. I like you. Well, yeah, and, and sorry, I'm not. Let's not slide him. He's oh, he, he, he was a very good driver. And, yeah. yeah, did some great things. Holding young line. Yeah. But and I don't want to go too far down the tangent here. But he did then, after a while, disappear from the yeah, uh, the Australian kind of scene. Yeah, sort of me too. After w, the WPS Falcon deal, which yeah, he says was the of. worst move of his career. <laughs> yeah, especially as I think he lied. He, he was. He he lined up the WPS deal initially. They came and sponsored him. Anyway, we, we've massively yeah, we don't we're, we're getting massively off track there. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to see here Don Penholz's quote when originally Mark Noski was announced to drive the car. So Don had been at the 2000 Clipsal 500 earlier in the year, I suppose, just you know, tying was it up. called the Clipsal 500 in 2000? For the first that time. That was the yeah. first time, right? Yeah. Okay. Sensational Adelaide Sensational. 500 before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd say it was kind of lukewarm Adelaide 500. And Mark, no, Mark, <laughs> Mark Noski was racing there in the Nations Cup in a Ferrari 360 Modena. And uh, so Don says that he was very impressed with Mark's efforts when he saw him race the Ferrari in Adelaide. He was fast and aggressive, and I was very impressed with his attitude and talent. 
And he also says he, he always wanted to give an Aussie a young bloke on a young a young Aussie a go on home soil. Now, I mean, you can't really compare a Ferrari three hundred and sixty to a Penhall Sports Car. I don't know. Front they've end, got, well, front they've end. got four wheels steering. But I mean, it was very much a production spec Ferrari three hundred and sixty Nations Cup at the time. They're both red. Well, yeah, they are. They Different are. shade of red, though. But it um. And Mark Noski's quote is saying after – so he'd lost his HRT drive earlier in the year for Bathurst. So he says after after missing out on Bathurst, to do Adelaide will be one hell of a bonus. And he said it was it was a great honour to be chosen for it. But it also comes to light that he won't test the car till it's in Australia. He won't get the um, Road Atlanta test later in the year. That's a shame actually because that's a pretty cool track I reckon yeah. to have a go in a panels mm. around. Yeah. So it also gets announced not long after that his partner for the race of a thousand years won't be Klaus Graf or Pierre Henri Raffinel. It'll be Craig Lowndes, who says wants to do Le Mans and he was looking forward to teaming up with Mark Noski. Just like BMW. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so but at the time in two thousand, Craig Lowndes is going through a bit of a contract debacle where he's looking to leave the Holden racing team and go elsewhere for the new year. But if his contract is in place with HRT till the end of 2000, so he's got to seek a release to race at Adelaide, which is obviously, well, the race ends two, two hours before his contract ends. So he's, he's announced as, as driver and there's promotion promotional posters done that list him, you know, have photos of him and Mark Noski. The, uh, the HRT boss, John Crennan, says that, HRT are willing to release him, but they need a written request because it comes to light later on that there's a news article saying that HRT blocked him to drive at Le Mans, despite all the promotion going out that he's racing, race at Adelaide, sorry. Yeah, I, I just find that, so that whole sequence really weird, especially Crennan rolling out that all they need is in writing and they, they had no issue with releasing him when you peel back the layers a little bit and it seems quite obvious that they're dirty about him leaving the team at the end of the year and are going to stand in his way of actually going and racing. I yeah. thought that was pretty dog. Is it, is it true? Like, is that is that true? Well, Prancing Horse Racing say that when they were trying to find local drivers for the Panos, they say that HRT lawyers sent them a letter telling them not to approach Lowndes or legal action would be taken. And Lowndes himself is quoted as saying, I was given permission at the time to do the Adelaide race, but that has now changed. Yeah, wow. disgraceful, isn't it? So That would have been a big, big scoop for, for the race to get Lowndes because that would have drawn in a whole group of you know, Lowndes supporters who would have come watch it, who may have, you know, 50% of them may have watched it anyway because they're motor racing fans, yeah. but ones that were just specific in touring cars, like it could have brought in a whole different element. Poor Lowndes, like even with his Le Mans endeavours <laughs> and he just can't yeah. get over there. Now, yeah, that's um, that's a shame actually. Yeah, quite yeah. petty in, like in hindsight, very petty and at the time, like totally unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And it's announced then that Greg Murphy will be Lowndes' replacement in the car. That's a pretty cool replacement though. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, not that this is the, um, not that this is the, the 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 gauge of right and wrong necessarily. But uh, Auto Action magazine did an internet poll on HRT's decision to stop Lowndes racing in Adelaide, and it said that seventy four point two seven percent thought HRT were wrong. So, it, which is interesting given HRT was the popular fan hmm. fan favorite team at the time. So, who's Greg Murphy driving for then? Holden Kmart Kmart. Uh, so who owned who owned that? No, two thousand. He was Gibson Motorsport. Okay. In the, oh, yeah. in the Kmart Commodore, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't part of the TWR empire. Yeah. At the time. Okay. So, also, so, he wasn't leaving for Ford. Yeah. True. Which. Yeah. yeah. But but still, I just there's some hypocrisy in that. Um, yeah, from, I'd from Holden. love to know if all that's hundred percent watertight. Yeah. It just sounds yeah. crazy. Yeah. Maybe it is true. I don't know. And it comes to light not long after that uh, Jason Bright will take over the second Penoz seat alongside Murphy in place of Mark Noski, who it said Penoz, the Penoz team are quoted as saying Noski fell foul of a lack of finance to cement his place. <laughs> so it seems you were right, Daniel. <laughs> well, no, no, 
just looking at its uh, the cards on the table there, yeah, I it, it just struck me as odd that Don Panos picks out Mark, Mark Noski from out of way. all the drive, drivers <laughs> yeah. available. In so Australia. Mark never got to drive the car then. No. Yeah. Brabham and Murphy got to sorry, not Brabham, Murphy, Murphy and right. Bright get, yeah. get to test it in um in America before the race. So in the end, that American them. test That's does cool. take place. Hmm. Um, and then David Brabham ultimately ends up becoming the third driver in that I'm car. I'm enjoying this. This is all so interesting. <laughs> I was too young to, to know any of this. This is cool. Yeah. So they end up forming a bit of a Australasian team for the race when it because the original plan is for David Brabham and Jan Magnussen, the usual teammates at Penos, to drive the brand new car, the 2001 model. Oh, because they were Penos. Stoke Brighton Murphy in the 2000 car. Yeah, yeah. So Brabham and Magnussen were going to drive the new car, but it comes to light there's a bit of development issues with it and yeah. they want Brabham in the most sort of Which makes the most sense. prominent car you, for the yeah. race, the one with the best chance. Don, Don wants the event to be successful. Uh, Brabham, home, hometown uh, driver, wants, wants him to be in the lean car and smart call. Like obviously they had a um, – that new car turned out to be an absolute pig. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. But no, a real shame Lowndes couldn't run. But there, there was a real, there was a well, there was a lot of rumours that went around with Penel, Don Penel was obviously trying using his cars to try and get some names to the race. So amongst the rumoured drivers to be part of the lineup at Adelaide during the year was that um, he tried to get Mario and Michael Andretti together. How good in a car for the race? Because Mario had driven for Penel's at Le Mans that year, as we mentioned earlier, but. Mario wouldn't refuse to racing at Adelaide because he didn't feel like he was up to up to par with his performance at Le Mans. But and basically Don was hoping that using Michael Andretti to race might sway Mario yeah. to go and do it. But that obviously came to nothing. Would have been you look at that track and what transpired, it would have been pretty brutal yeah. on Mario. Well, he did come back a couple of years later to practice at Indy. He did. And look, look how <laughs> that, that was pretty out. brutal. Yeah. I think that was much more brutal yeah. than Adelaide would be. Um, now, Klaus Ludwig was also linked to a Penos seat. That one hit me for six. I didn't know that at the time. Um, Klaus, he'd retired after 1998 and then came back to do DTM in 2000 um, with Mercedes. But then to be linked to a seat at Adelaide in a Penos was a bit, was a bit left field. The seat ultimately ended up going to Klaus Graf, the Panos test driver, to drive alongside Ian Magnussen in the 2001 model Panos. But um, whether something got lost in translation between the two classes, it would have been great for Klaus Ludwig to race, though. Yeah, that would have been. He was a sports car stalwart. and It shows you how far, to, far and wide it comes back to it as well. Don was willing to do whatever it was to have the best chance of success for the event. Yeah. So It's also announced in lead up to the race that um, the – the drivers of the second panels in 2000, Johnny O'Connell and Hiroki Kato, were being replaced after Adelaide for 2001. So they have a drive and two hours later they're out of contract. So Audi were, as we've mentioned earlier, Audi were the dominant force in the 2000 American Le Mans series. It's interesting to note that at the start of the year, they the, the effort was announced to be North American funded, Audi North America funded, and that the funding wouldn't it wouldn't extend to Europe or Adelaide, but ultimately in the end they end up they end up committing to all the races, and it start they start off the year by saying that probably will be there. The decision has not been taken when it came to Adelaide as the year rolled on, and the organisers of Adelaide were apparently trying to get Tom Christensen in to partner Frank Beeler and Emmanuel Piero in one of the in in the in the second works Audi. Um, to sort of, I suppose they wanted to, they, those three won Lamar together in 2000. So I guess they wanted to bring the um, bring the dream team back together. But there's an interesting quote during the, during the year from Tom Christensen where he's asked about what he thinks of Adelaide and the event at Adelaide and another bit of an ominous quote. He says, uh, it's an event that is, already ex- that is already a success before it has started. Bold, well, it bold, is. But I, I like mean, it. Yeah. On paper, it is a success. I yeah. mean, like we've said it a thousand times. This just sounds <laughs> awesome. Mm-hmm. So, and he's, he, I agree with him. And Christensen says he wants to do the race, but it's likely only if the teams need three drivers. Which is a, a bit of a shame. Race, not likely. Yeah. yeah. Which it turned out they may have 
<laughs> Actually, yes, in the end, it was possibly they probably did need three drivers for the car. It was looking that way on the Saturday anyway. Because where, where was Christensen at his career at that point in 99 or 2000 he, at that point? He'd won, well, he'd won Le Mans in 97 yeah. on debut, but in 2000 he was driving in the British Touring Car Championship for Honda. Yeah. Um, and 98, 99 he'd done the German STW Cup yeah. for um, so it was very for early well. on, yeah, prior, yeah, okay, yeah, but it's sort of he was doing a bit of sports car racing and, but one one thing that what that one really cool thing that came up in the lead up to Adelaide with regards to Audi was they unveiled a paint scheme for Alan McNish and Dindo Capello's car in a, a crocodile livery. Isn't that an iconic paint scheme? Like when when you think Audi R8, that's one of the first open top sports car ones. That, that you think of, the crocodile paint scheme, in my mind. Up, up there with the um, Bathurst 12-hour uh, tribute in 2015. Yeah. Well, I think that crocodile livery defines the race. Ooh, big call. Oh, def- defines the race. You know, like well, that's what yeah, yeah. you think about. It sticks out. Yeah. So one, notice, one noticeable omission from the race of a 1,000 years was the works BMW prototypes run by Schnitzer in 2000. Now, at the start of the year, they they announced a full camp or not. Well, it was made out they announced a full campaign, but if you have a look at it, they never. never yeah. They mm-hmm. they never actually committed. It's announced at the start of the year that Schnitzer will prepare the cars, the great Schnitzer team, and that Jorg Muller, JJ Lado, and Bill Orbelin will be the drivers. And it was expected Joe Winklehock, or Smoke and Joe as we know him, would be the um, would be the fourth driver. But at the last minute. BMW releases him and it gets announced he's doing the DTM with Opel in 2000. And um, BMW basically say they didn't want to stand in the way of what he wanted to do. So ultimately, John Mark Gunon, former former F1 driver, gets announced as the fourth driver. But it is made out that BMW North America is funding the team and that they still wanted, they'll still do Nürburgring and Silverstone because. Um, they're quoted as saying, we're planning to do the full season. We should take the opportunity when there are two races in Europe. But there's no mention of Adelaide in that, <laughs> but they do say full season. Um, now, during the year, there, there, there was obviously some intention to do Adelaide because um, Formula One driver in 2000 for Prost, John Alacy, gets linked to driving a Schnitzer BMW at Adelaide. Would have been, That would have been huge. Yeah. That would be great because he, he was friends with Gerhard Berger, who was the BMW motorsport boss at the time. I, th- I think once again, the positioning of this event is so like obviously New Year's Eve, mm. so late in the year. BMW were committed to doing the to European rounds, even though it was North American funded. But once again, they kind of weigh that up and they go 2001. Things are really cracking on with. Uh, uh, their Formula One campaign, and do you know what I mean? It's it's so late in the year. Yeah. What's what? What are they gaining from it? Championships are already done. Yeah. Well, it says that um, Alacy's participation rested on Alan Prost, um, his team F1 team owner, giving the approval. But they, they BMW says he should be available for it, but it was a moot point in the end. Although the article from Crash.net does say that Schnitzer is yet to commit to Adelaide but would commit if the race if they were still in title contention which ultimately they weren't after um after the second last round in Las Vegas and w- when the announcement does come through it gets announced that yeah as i said they pull out after they lose contention for the title and they're going to spend december testing the new GT class BMW M3 for 2001 Quote from Mario Thiessen from BMW says, our decision takes immediate, takes immediate effect. Adelaide is bound to be a spectacular event, even though the titles are already accounted for. It's not Mario Tyson. Probably. Yeah. Yes. Was. Yeah. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> uh, Charlie Lamb, the Schnitzer team manager, says that um, on New Year's Eve, we'll no doubt be thinking of Australia rather wistfully, but deep down we'll all be glad to be back home in Bavaria with our families after our lengthy American visits. And it's also announced that Bill Orbelin, who'd driven the prototype all year, would still be in Adelaide driving the GT-class BMW M3 for PTG Motorsport. Charlie Lamb's one there is a classic way of saying thank you, but no thanks. Well, <laughs> it's kind of like I saying wonder. it will be great, but 
we're not going to be there, but well, have a good time. All I can think of is there must have been a really good BMW New Year's Eve party planned. Well, <laughs> and Char- they've gone. Mario and Charlie have been on the phone and thought, oh, we could go to Australia, but we don't want to miss. Should we spend don't, half don't, a million dollars yeah. going to Australia? We, or should we, we don't want to miss the New Year's Eve party. <laughs> the, the, the problem for BMW was they. So Hans Stuck, who was the lead driver of their GT class BMW with PTG Motorsport, which Bill Orbelin was joining. So he turned 50 on January 1 and was also ducking off to the Great Barrier Reef straight after the race for his honeymoon. Taking full advantage of Don's offer. Yeah, That's done that yeah, perfectly. yeah. So you can, you can wonder the phone call. You can see Mario and um, Charlie have come up with a great plan. Oh, we won't go to Adelaide. We'll... Do this. We'll, we'll go to the BMW New Year's Eve party. It's going to go off, and then one of them's come to their attention. Oh, what about Hans? It's his birthday. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. <laughs> we'll we'll send you down with um, even though we drove a different car, but um, you know you can rep, you can represent the prototype team down there. But yeah, so it, it does also say at one point BMW were thinking of continuing with the V12 LMR. Prototype in 2001, but ultimately... Didn't happen. Yeah, it didn't end up happening. Um, one side note to BMW, the PTG BMW team, is they won the, the Cooper's Home Brew competition during Prestig- 2000... Prestigious uh, award. ALMS rounds, yeah. So they won with their with their brand of beer called the Check the Splitter Bitter. Not a bad one. Would you like to try that? Probably tastes better than Furphy. <laughs> I don't know about that. No, nah, Furfy's all right. Don't know about that. <laughs> Joking, Furfy. Yeah, there's an opportunity here yeah. for your Furfy too, if you can. I've I've snuck a few Furfies down at the twelve hour out of Luke's esky. Don't worry. But um, from Australian interest, when it came to sort of local entries for the race, um, Jim Cornish, who'd been running in the Australian Super Touring Championship for a few years, visit your vet Honda Accord. Yes, yeah. He um he did a deal to drive. What would was in reality an LMP six seven five car, or what nowadays we call LMP two, but it was the only LMP six seven five car entered in the race, so they just got bumped up into the outright prototype class. But he was supposed to drive drive a car called a Pillbeam. Tested, um, he tested, he went to Silverstone and tested the car. So I mean that from where the Australian Super Touring Championship was in two thousand to get a drive like that is um. Yeah, no. Pretty good. And he was going to drive with Michael Malik, who was the son of Ray, who um, ran Ray Malik Engineering on the British Touring Car Championship in 1999 with Nissan. And uh, Jamie Wall, who Australian people would know from, he he did the the 98 Bathurst 1000 with Mark Adderton in a Honda Accord. He did the opening round in Lakeside. 99, yeah. And he also did the 97 British Touring Car Championship Mm. in, uh, in a Vauxhall. But so that ended up, that ended up not running, which we'll come to in a in a later part of the of the podcast. But um, there were a few other Australians who ended up on the entry list. We had Alan Heath, who, who was running V8 supercars at the time. Um, Ray Lintot ended up in a Chamberlain Engineering Viper. Darren Palmer and Christian D'Agostin got in a Porsche. Christian D'Agostino, I believe. <laughs> As, was it called Channel Seven? Was it Channel Seven coverage back then? Yeah. yeah. Um, and even Des Wall got a start in the um, in a Rowan Skay Porsche. Rowan Skay, an Australian-born international businessman who had a couple of Porsches running in the race. But so, so it was good to see a few Australians get on the grid. That's what I mean, yeah. With um, you know, yeah, your Brabs, Bryce. I don't know if we'll, we'll count Murph um, as a Kiwi, but but yeah, it's a good oh, representation. We always claim the Kiwis. Like, well, so we'll include Murph yeah, in this one. Exactly. Yeah. But so good range too. You go from Super Touring, Sports Sedans. Um, I believe Darren Palmer was in F3 at the time um, and, and up to V8. So, yeah, no, good representation of the Australian motorsports scene. So just to finish up the first part of the episode, I've got a bit of a question for you guys. It was announced in the lead up to the race that after the race there would be so many people at the event that they're going to need two concerts. And you had two choices. You could go to the Pitside Party featuring In Excess with John Stevens along with Taxi Ride or you could go to the New Year's Revolution concert on CBC Oval which was headlined by The Living End, UMI and Spider Bait. 
So where are you going to go after Ooh. the race? Go on the Kylie Minogue concert, Luke. <laughs> 2000 <laughs> Kylie Minogue. She was the big star. I'd be going to that one. She wasn't at Adelaide though. Oh, <laughs> oh brutal. She was a part of NXS. <laughs> God, I'm showing my age. I'm a big Tim point. Rogers fan. I'd, I'd go to the UMI gig. Yeah, right. Where are you going, Adam? Oh. Probably NXS for me. Yeah, I'd go to go, NXS. Go, go from my time back at there from growing up, heard a lot of NXS. So I'll yeah. go to Living End. <laughs> Punk it, rock, 2000s. It's pretty cool. Yeah, not the real NXS. So. Yeah. Wow. Or oh, four fifths. And they're fronted by John Stevens. Didn't Powderfinger play or something? Uh, not in my notes here. Maybe I misread that what, somewhere. What about you, Luke? Oh, NXS. NXS for you? Easy. Easy choice. So that's where we'll end the first part of our episode. Join us for part two where we'll focus on the race itself and the debacle that happens after the event. Thanks to Daniel, Adam and Brock. I'm Luke Blackman and we'll be back for part two very soon. Motor Racing Passion is produced by Luke Ryan for Tum Drum Media.